two Coke bottles. One has Coke in it. The other has just normal water. So, are you thirsty? Which one do you want to drink? You want to drink the Coke? Come on up. <laughs> we have to do it in the, in, the, in the boiler room so we don't get it on the carpet. Um, same bottle, same circumstances, different stuff inside. Um, one of the things that we want to recognize is all of us are going through those shakings in life. There's tur turbulence, tribulation, and trouble that go on all around us every single day. And it really matters what's going on inside of us that will tell the tale about what's going to come out of us. As we look through our passage this morning and, and think through just a couple of verses of Romans chapter 12, I'd like to compare our reception of God's love with the Coke bottle filled with fresh spring water. That no matter what goes on around, it remains steady. It remains um, under control. It remains at peace. God has filled us with living water. This is a, a reality for every believer. He's filled us with living water. And it is this living water that we are offering to others as we walk through this life that's filled with turbulence. The turbulence absolutely shakes our natural inner man. But the new creation, that spiritual life that has been provided to us from God, that spiritual nature, that new creation remains unchanged, unshaken, regardless of what is going on around us. We've been told by Jesus, in this life, you will have tribulation. He also said, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So while telling us of the difficulty that we will face, he reminds us of the victory that has been won. That love that we have received from God that makes such an impact in our lives God has given to us, and we want to share with one another. We want to share with one another that very same love that we have received that changes our outlook, our perspective, and our ability to endure. As we've been going through this passage, we've noted a, a number of character traits of God's love that must be seen as we love one another. We're not going to recap. We're going to move forward. The first new one for us to discuss this morning is that God's love is passionate. God's love is passionate. Romans 12, please look at verses 11 and 12 with me. These are our verses for this morning. Romans 12, 11 and 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So we come to verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now you know this, but I want to remind you, this is one of my jobs as a pastor, is not always to tell you something new but to remind you of what the Bible and what God is teaching us in the Bible again and again and again. You are aware that God is passionate about rescuing people. And the way that I want for us to think through that is to remind you of the book of Jonah. Were the Ninevites seeking God? Did Jonah want to go? To the Ninevites. Why did Jonah hate them so much? 
There was a reason why Jonah hated the Ninevites. They were, they were really abysmal in their treatment of many others, including the Jewish people. But in the face of their terror, God demonstrates himself to be different than we are. Because when people are terrors to us, we want to terrorize them. But God in his redeeming, merciful love does things immensely different. Rather than hating and destroying the Ninevites, God sought to redeem them and to demonstrate his matchless love. And you, you'll remember, I don't know if you, how, how much you remember about the, the book of Jonah, but Jonah preaches, and the people of Nineveh repent, and Jonah was super angry. I told you this was going to happen. This is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. I knew you to be a merciful and kind and forgiving God. And so the people repent. And then there is Jonah underneath his little tree, his gourd, very happy with his gourd. And then the gourd is shriveled. And, and Jonah was now sad. And the question that kind of the book of Jonah ends on is this concept. Oh, you're super sad about the gourd. But you didn't want to save actual people. You didn't want to be the messenger of my mercy to actual people. This is just a little sampling of God's passionate pursuit of people like me and people like you. Now, from one of the most well-known psalms, I want to bring your attention to the last verse of Psalm 23. You don't need to turn there. You know it, and it's on the screen. God's Word says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Keep that word in mind. Shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word follow me comes from a Hebrew term, radaf, which is used in Judges 4.16 about chariots chasing down people to kill them. Now wait a second. This is confusing. You know that, that passionate pursuit that those warriors had for their enemies to take them out? This text, Psalm 23.6, is talking about that same tenacity, that same passion to hunt someone down to bring them good. Surely, goodness and mercy shall pursue me passionately. How many days? All the days of my life. And how good is God at accomplishing that? It's so good that, that David says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a passionate pursuit that has a proper end, which is Him with God forever. That's the proper end. God is chasing us down. What is He chasing us down with? Goodness and mercy. God chases us to bring us good. And God is not lackadaisical in that pursuit. And so we should not be lazy or casual in our pursuit of loving one another. That same way God pursues us, follows us, chases us with His good, merciful love is the same way He is essentially calling upon us to love one another with that same kind of a passionate, zealous love. Do not be slothful in zeal. And then he says, be fervent in spirit. Be fervent in spirit. That's in verse 11 again. And the word fervent has the idea of boiling. Boiling or bubbling. You know, you, you pasta people, I want to be a pasta people. Currently, I'm not allowed to be a pasta people. Thank you. You put the water on this. I'm only kidding. She didn't make me do this. I did this to myself. At any rate, you turn the stove on, you put the pot of water on there, and you're waiting, okay? And eventually, it starts to, to bubble. Why? Because the heat has, has done its thing to the water to start to, to change its 
uh, chemical composition. Right? Boiling up, there's something exciting, something that has got it percolating like a coffee pot. Well, what, what makes you excited? I know for me, I have lots of passions. I love my family, and I love football, and I love food, all of those things. But nothing, nothing quite stirs me and bubbles me up inside like thinking about God's relentless love for me. Um, when you think of God perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, reaching into a world of broken, lost, rebellious sinners and saving a person like me, and you say, a person like you. It's, it's, it's unfathomable to think about how merciful and gracious and kind he is. And this really causes my heart to bubble with joy like nothing else in the world does. I can be in my office all by myself, you know, studying a passage or reading a book, and, and when my mind is stirred up in this concept, I can actually feel my whole insides churning positively and I can f physically feel a smile on my face all by myself. There's no one to smile at. I can just, I know, I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed at a God who loves like this. God is passionate in his love. He's not um, lackadaisical. In fact, he's very passionate. I want first to take a look at a passage about this. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 6. I want the passion that God has for me, the, the passionate love that God has for me to spill over and to be seen in my love for you and for others. I find that to be valuable. And I, and I, I would propose to you that you should want that same passionate love that you've received that has impacted you so much to be spilling over actively to passionately pursue and love others. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 6, and I find it to be uh, really closely aligned with this topic, which is why we're turning there. Look at verses 10 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 6. It says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So just pause there for a second and let that kind of sit on you for a moment. God is not unjust to forget that you're loving other people for his name's sake. You're doing that by serving them and you're doing it perpetually. This is, this is the record. So God doesn't forget that. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same, what does that next word say? Earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the pro promises. The idea here is, you know, you have been passionately uh, caring for one another. God is not going to forget that. And I want to make sure that all of us, every believer, is earnest in their exercise, their passionate care of love for one another. That's, that's his call in this passage. And what he does is he equates this, in verse 10 that I already mentioned, to serving the saints... And what he does in Romans chapter 12 is he equates it to serving the Lord. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serving the Lord is uh, the result or the demonstration by, of, of loving one another. And so serving the Lord is tied to this concept. Our love for one another is attached to God's mission of pursuing people. Because he uses people like you and me to point others to him. You're familiar with this passage in John chapter 13. Jesus told his disciples this in the context of um, washing their, their feet. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. What the next word says? It should be on the screen there. Just as 
I, I give you this new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he's telling us that this love that we have for one another isn't like just, you know, doing a good deed for good deed's sake. When we love one another the way that, that we're, we're being called to, we're demonstrating something of the character and nature of Jesus Christ through loving just as he does. And then those that see this taking place from, from the outside or maybe even the recipient of that love will be turned toward the reality of the one that we're following as opposed to the reality of who we are. It's not like we're saying, I want to do these good things so you can think well of me. Like, I'm a really good Christian guy. We're doing this because we want others to know who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the only one that can save them. Isn't that true? And in doing this, we're serving the Lord. We're, we're actually engaging in God's mission of pursuing others while we love like this. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now these, these words should stir us um, quite well. Because when you think about the way that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, phrases this, we get a bigger idea of the things we're doing. So often, like you go through your day, you're just kind of functioning, right? It's, it's every day. You do the same things uh, a lot of days, and you go through your routine, you get it done, and then you, you know, the, the, your weekly routine goes on. And we kind of just get used to it all. But this passage that we're about to read, if, if we'll let it, will shake us a little bit to help us to see there's a lot more going on than our regular routine, particularly if we are doing this or looking to be passionately pursuing one another. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 3 to start. He says, working together with him. Who's the him? Well, go back to chapter 5 and verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The subject of that verse is God the Father. God the Father made God the Son to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God through God the Son. Chapter 6 and verse 1, working together with him. Then, So we're talking about really engaging in a task with our Heavenly Father. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? It's like, well, I work for, you know, I work for the congregation, or I work for the military, or I work for so-and-so. No, we're talking about something way bigger than this. The God who created everything, the God who sustains everything, the God who redeems people, the God who's going to bring about the, the full end of all things and the consummation of all things and, and the eternal kingdom, that's the God that we're working shoulder to shoulder with. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, this ministry of working together with God, a ministry that's demonstrating the, the Spirit of God and the, the, the love of God. Look down at verse 6. These are some, some elements of the ministry. It says, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and what does that last one say? Genuine love. That's what we're being called to back in Romans chapter 12. Let your love be genuine is verse 9 that's how this section started let your love be genuine and this genuine love god is equating with serving and working with him for his kingdom and for the good of those around us i find that to be amazing i find that to be motivating it's not loving for loving's sake it's not loving to be a swell guy it's loving and serving the lord well, what are the contexts in which we serve in this kind of a fruitful ministry? 
Well, God may call a person to move across the world to bring the gospel, and we would be rejoicing and supportive of any of you who felt that call. We would equally be supportive and rejoicing of anyone that felt the call into pastoral ministry. That's wonderful. This is great. But just so you know, it's not limited to formal, pu- formal public ministry. This is a, a call for every believer to be engaged in loving, passionately loving one another as reflections of the love that we've received. That love that God has poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that he has given us. That love is not supposed to be play, you know, put in our pocket and kind of stored up, you know, and you know, dole it out here and there. We're to be channels of that love so that God's love is on display in us and through us. So God's passionate love for us is a love that he has poured out by his spirit into our hearts and we want to share that passionate love. Head back to Romans now. Two books to your left, Romans chapter 12 and we'll look at verse 12 together. We already noted that God's love is passionate and we want our love to be passionate. So also is God's love settling. Settling. God's love re- Uh, results in a joy that brings forth hope. Joy that results from hope. So, you know, get this same thing going on here. Could really get this thing worked up, right? And if I were to open it, you know what's going to happen. You've seen it. You've tried to avoid it. You've tried to tap on it. You know, like that's going to work. Helps a little bit, I guess. But usually, once you start that process, it's going to go unless you just let it sit. Um, But God's work, His love in us, brings forth a joy that results from a hope that we have, a confident expectation. So He tells us in verse 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, it looks in verse 12 like rejoice is a command, doesn't it? But it's not. It's a participle. And really, it's a, uh, an action resulting from genuine love. So this rejoicing, it's not, hey, go rejoice in hope. You know, get at it. Get to it now. Go rejoice in hope. It's really that love produces a rejoicing. A rejoicing. Because we have hope. So let's, let's think about that. It, you know, As you know, joy is a fruitful expression of the Spirit's work in our lives. I don't get a chance to control the flow of joy because that is a work of the Spirit. It's like if someone says, I know you're having a rough day, but be joyful. How's that going to work? It's kind of like telling someone who's really worked up to calm down. It never works. We still do it. We still say, calm down. Hey, calm down. It's going to be all right. Calm down. And they always like, look at us with this crazed look in their eyes when you say calm down to the person who's bubbling inside. Go be joyful. It's not how it works. There's something that leads us to an inexplicable joy. We'll talk more about that as we go along here. The Spirit uses truth to teach us and remind us of a bigger picture And the joy or rejoicing that flows from the Spirit is in accordance with this word hope. Now, hope is an important word for us to understand. You know, in in our secular society, hope is kind of like, I hope it doesn't snow today. Or I hope the Patriots will make it to the Super Bowl. Or I I hope that I'll be able to have a filet mignon for supper. Something like that. I hope this thing, I, you know, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily going to happen, but like really I'm kind of wishful. That's not the Bible's general usage of the term hope. The general usage of the Bible's term hope is a confident expectation about the future. It's an important concept. A confident expectation about the future. And most specifically, a confident expectation about our eternal Dwelling with God. That's really the hope. So I want first to look at a couple of passages to help us to, to, to sense this hope. Where does this hope come from? Because hope is important in this passage, right? Hope results in joy, right? 
Joy comes from an understanding of hope. So let's take a look at a couple of passages. First of all, Hebrews chapter 10. A confident expectation about an eternal destiny in the presence of God. Also, a confident expectation that God is going to fulfill His promises. What is our hope based upon? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 is an excellent description of hope. Would you mind trying this with me? You might have a different version than I do. That's all right. Let's try to read verse 23 together. It'll be interesting. Hebrews 10, 23. Let's read. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. So the call is to let you know, is for, for us to hold on to something, a confession of our hope without being moved. Hold on to this profession that we are stayed on something. But what is it based on? It's that last fra- uh, phrase of the, the verse that's so vitally important. He who promised is faithful. He is the basis of our hope. Too many times in religious circles, here in this kind of church and in churches like us, we can be very easily shifted away from hope in God and faith in God to faith in hope and faith in faith. If you'll just hold on long enough, you'll be all right. Who are you trusting in right now? You. What do you try? I'll hold on long enough. No one will be able to pry my fingers loose of this thing. You're trusting in you and your faith. That, my friend, is absolutely dangerous. You waver. You change. You shift. You twist. You bubble. The absolute fixture of our faith and the absolute sustenance of our hope is a God who never changes. This is why in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27 it talks about the fact that Christ in you the hope of glory. What's the hope of glory? Christ in you. It's not you It's not your church. It's not your profession or confession. It's about Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. And so we have this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the love chapter. It talks all about, you know, if if you don't have love, all the works and faith and speeches and all that stuff, it really results in not much. And then he gives us a description of love in verses 4 through the beginning of verse 8. Then he gives us a a little bit of information about the uh, turning of a new page and the day that we'll see the Lord. But I want for us to focus in on just the last verse of 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to this passage. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Well, there's probably been a lot of people that have proposed a lot of reasons why love is the greatest of these. I think the simplest and most basic understanding of it is this. Your faith in Christ will one day be made sight. Right? Because you'll stand in the presence of God and you'll no longer have to trust because your trust will be realized. So faith will come to its conclusion. Hope also is this confident expectation of what is to come and that hope will be realized. And so it will come to its conclusion. There will be nothing else to really hope for when the consummation of all things is there and we're dwelling in the presence of the Lord. So faith comes to its proper conclusion and hope comes to its proper fulfillment. But love endures. We are always going to be testimonies of God's love for us. Because we didn't love Him first. 
He loved us first. The only reason we love at all is because He loved us. Isn't that what it says in 1 John? We love because He first loved us. It's amazing. So we will be forever trophies or testimonies of God's glorious redeeming love. And so love endures through all these things. God's steadfast love leads us to rejoice in hope. And our rejoicing in hope can impact others to understand the reliability of God. We can trust Him. This is a loving way to live. Head back, please, to Romans chapter 12. It's a loving way to live. To believe God, to know God, to understand how great He is. He provides us joy even in the midst of difficulty because we have hope in Him. So now we move on from rejoicing in hope to patient in tribulation, or as we have it on the screen, patience during tribulation. Again, I could use the Coke bottle again to shake it up, but I think you've got it by now, right? I don't have to keep shaking the poor thing up. Our lives are filled with different kinds of trouble. You think you're alone in having trouble? It's common to man. Yours might be slightly unique, but not very. Our troubles take on different clothing. There are relationship issues, child training issues, workplace stress, societal unrest, economic uncertainty, problems with our health, problems with the health of people we love. The list goes on and on and on. God never promises that we will be free from trouble in this life. But instead, he prepares us by declaring that trouble is part of the normal course of life. It is important, but impossible humanly, to embrace our trouble. Notice I used a number of words there. It is important, but impossible humanly, to embrace our trouble. Troubles we need. God's Spirit can enable us to embrace those troubles. That God kindly, caringly distributes into our pathway. Difficulties, while we don't like them, are from His hand. Now, some people are the culprits, but our sovereign God could ward them off one after the other if he so chose. But rather than choosing to ward them off, he allows them into our lives that we might endure them to learn of him more. Do not despair when you face troubles as if it is a punishment, though sometimes there is a way in which God will lovingly train us through these things. We are given the understanding that this life is not worth grasping with both our hands and all our strength. Troubles can help us to start to release the things that we would cling to. We recognize that these things that we cling to are part of this experience. And God, through trouble in this life, helps us to start to release some of that grip. It's an important process. And he chooses to do this. But he also with it provides what we need. You know, we've already learned about the reliability of our God and his great care for us. 
He's given us a sure confidence that we will be with him forever. And because of that hope that we have, we can press uh, through troubles in this life patiently. There are a number of ways or reasons for us to endure trouble patiently. And I'm just going to list a number of things here. This is going to be a little, uh, a quick little machine gun-like item. Shouldn't probably say that in church, I guess. A little listing. I'll call it that instead. A little listing of things. If you want to jot some of this down, it might be helpful to you to look at later. There are a number of reasons for us to endure trouble patiently. First of all, God is changing us. God is changing us. We see that in Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. I'll mention just a little bit of this passage. It says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not make itself ashamed. And then it talks about God's love. And so you've got these same concepts of hope and patience and love in in uh, Romans 5 that we have in Romans 12 that we're, we're kind of considering. God is changing us. This is a reason to patiently endure trouble. Secondly, God is with us in the trouble. God is with us in the trouble. This is so comforting. I know you, most of you probably know the passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, where he says, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said... What does it say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the Greek, it actually has five negatives. Essentially, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Or maybe I could take the four and one and drop the other negative to the second one. You get the idea. God is really emphasizing the fact that you will never go through anything in this life as a believer that He is not in the midst of it with you. He never leaves us to our own devices. He's always there. Thirdly, God holds us up in the trouble. God holds us up in the trouble. This is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation that has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. God is faithful. There's our hope, right? God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation. He will also provide the way to escape. Now listen carefully to this. That you may be able to endure it. It's not my favorite translation. I don't know if any of the translations quite capture the the fullness of the Greek verb there. It's to bear up under. So you've got this pressure coming down and the concept is one of bearing up while it's crashing down. So God's not saying I'm going to take it away. He's telling you that while it's crashing, I am holding you up. I am holding you up. This is a reason to navigate patiently through tribulation because God, in the midst of it, God is holding us up. That's incredible. Who has a God like this? Who has a God that cares about them in the midst of their trouble? I do. Do you? So this is what we need. We can patiently endure because God is changing us, because God is with us in the trouble and He's holding us up. And fourthly, God will rescue us. Do you believe it? Now look at these two verses. First one is 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. I love this. This serves as like a hub right in the middle of 2 Peter chapter 2. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now godly, you know, you have to think about this, oh man, well I'm not quite godly enough. I'm not one of those that God rescues from trials. It's talking about people that he's redeemed. God knows how to rescue you if you're a believer. He knows how to rescue you from trials. This is good news. And then in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, the reason that Jesus came, He came to save us and He came to help us. It says in Hebrews 2.18, for because He Himself has suffered when He is tempted, He is able to, what does it say? Help those who are being tempted. He's able to help us in the middle of it. He's going to rescue us. Do you know there's a day coming? I don't know what it is. There's a day coming when you will never sin Again, you will be made just 
like Jesus. The Bible says we will uh, see him, we will know him, we will be known by him, we will be like him, but we will see him as he is. It's amazing. There's a coming day when we will never sin again. God is rescuing us. God will rescue us. As God has encouraged you through your difficulty, you can demonstrate to others that God is reliable enough to help them, others, navigate through the most difficult circumstances of life. This is a clear demonstration of God's love in you and through you when you can endure in the midst of difficulty. And everyone is going through difficulty. Don't think yours is worse. You don't know what's going on in other people's lives. Endure. For God's sake, he is able to do this. Now this brings us to the last portion of our discussion this morning in Romans 12, 12. It says, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Fruit resulting from prayer. So we're thinking about joy that results from hope and patience through tribulation. But the glue that holds it together is this last one. He says, be constant in prayer. Or in other translations, be devoted to prayer. Why would, why would you be devoted to prayer while thinking of trouble and difficulty because every good and perfect thing comes from above from the father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning there's a reason for us to go to the lord you know we used to sing in our bible school before every chapel praise god from whom all blessings flow there is no one better to bring your troubles to than God. Did you know that? You can call everybody you know and some of their friends too and talk to them about whatever it is that's on your heart. And that's helpful. It can be. Getting things out of, out of your mind and off your chest are helpful things. But there's no one better to bring your troubles to than the Lord. This is why Peter, when talking about humility, says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, casting all your cares upon Him for He cares for you. You're bringing your cares, your anxieties, your turbulence inside to the Lord, recognizing that he, he actually cares about you. This is really important. You know, we're looking for hope and joy and patience. We're looking for peace. Right? Joy, hope, patience, and peace. We're looking for these things, but you know they're not like a little spice shaker that you go into your cabinet grab it out and kind of sprinkle it on here and sprinkle it on there. You don't have a little jar of these items. You don't get to carry them around in your pocket and say, oh, look, look at, I want to show you this. I've got a little bit of peace over here and a little bit of joy right there. A little bit of patience. It's pretty good. And some hope in this back part of my palm. Isn't it neat? I'm going to put it back in there now. It's not how it works. You don't sprinkle it on. These are gifts provided gifts provided they come from on high which is why it's so important that this little subsection ends with be devoted be constant in prayer because we have to know where joy comes from we have to know where patience comes from where peace comes from where hope comes from they come from above we don't grab a shaker out and say oh i've got my recipe i'm ready to Start on these things. These are items provided. And so let's think about this. Just two more verses of Scripture to conclude our discussion this morning. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I want you for you to think of this. I'm going to read it in just a moment. It'll be on the screen. But I want you to think of it in light of what we're just talking about. That peace is a grace given. Not something I hold on to and distribute however I want or learn about and try to figure out how to use it. It's, a, it's something given to me from God. And this passage is going to tell me a little bit how I access it. 
In Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known, where? To God. And what will happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The concept here is God flooding into us His peace, and then God's peace then sits as a watchman for our soul. So here I am. I've got trouble all around. I've got turbulence, and and I'm very anxious. Where do I go? Well, it's good to talk to people. But there's no one better to talk to than the Lord. Bring your request to Him. Recognize His ability and allow Him to give you a peace that not only enters you, but works for you. That peace is on the job. God is on the job inside of you. But we've got to go. We've got to go to Him. Go to Him. Lord, I'm so frustrated. I'm so angry. I'm so anxious. Things aren't good. Man, I, I, I want to, whatever. Lord, I need you. I need you to give me your peace. And I need you to guard my heart. I need you to guard my soul. And you know, the Lord tells us that when we pray in accordance with his will, he hears us and we have the petition. In other words, he hears us and he acts. It's a wonderful thing to know this. I don't know what you're struggling with right now, but I know this. There's peace for you from God if you go to him. One more passage, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This again will talk about tribulation. It will talk about prayer. It will talk about faith. It will talk about patience. And it will talk about joy. So in other words, this is the same kind of context here in James chapter 1 that we have in Romans chapter 12 that we've been studying. James chapter 1, look please at verses 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and then it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person who prays with, with doubt must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Uh-oh. Who's sufficient for these things? All right, Because you and I, in the midst of our trouble, we don't always have perfect faith. I don't want to be a double-minded man asking for God and not believing Him. So what do I do? Lord... I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Did you know that one of the fruitful demonstrations of the Spirit is faith? So if you're struggling with belief, go to God. Lord, I'm struggling to believe you, but I'm talking to you right now. Lord, I need you. I need faith. I need to believe you in this situation. I need to believe you for the rest of my life. There's, God understands. He remembers our frame that we are made out of dust. And he longs to hear from us. And that which he requires from us, faith, he supplies for us. He's so good. I, I just can't even fathom how good my God is, that I need faith. I need faith so that I can have patience. I need faith so I can have joy. 
I need faith so I can have peace. I need faith so I can have hope. And that faith, he's willing to give to me. He's so kind. And I'm, I'm blown away by that. And you know, as God works in this, he starts to really reassure us. God is never shaken by any circumstance. He is not shaken by civil unrest. He is not shaken by nightmarish relationship problems. He is not shaken despite financial hardship. And He's not shaken in the face of our sin. Oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. I never would have saved him if I knew it was going to be like that. He's not shaken. He's faithful. He's sturdy. He's steadfast. He's unmovable. God is never shaken. None of this surprises him. None of it moves him. He's faithful and he's approachable and he gives us peace. When we receive this type of peaceful, joyful, hopeful, patient grace from God, we can be channels of these graces that benefit those around us. And you know what? It's a very loving way to live. It's a loving way to see the provision of the Lord, to believe Him, and to be able to navigate through difficulty and have hope in the face of all the difficulties. God uses that for His glory. Let's pray together. Our great compassionate, peace-giving, hope-giving, patience-giving, joy-giving God. We rejoice in you and thank you for your faithfulness to us. Help us, Father, not to rely upon ourselves, but to be ready always to look to you to provide these virtues that we desperately need Our lives are filled with difficulty and you know it well. You know it and you care and you're with us. Help us to cry out to you and to receive from you these gracious provisions that we might be encouraged and that we might be an encouragement to others. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.